Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. To encourage people to successfully engage in alcohol and other drug treatment, services need to be safe, welcoming and non-judgmental. One strategy used by many AOD services, uh, service providers is to empower and utilise the voices of individuals with lived experience. Growing in popularity and prevalence within the sector, lived experience workers or, or peer support workers play an important role in creating services that successfully engage people in AOD treatment. This week's podcast guest, Jack Nagel, is an everyday Aussie, passionate about finding and creating solutions for service consumers in the alcohol and other drug sector. His passion comes from his own experience of substance addiction and consuming services in some of his most vulnerable moments. After sharing his story extensively in all forms of national media, Jack created Real Drug Talk. In his role as founder and director, he sits on several national government, non-government and research advisory committees advocating for the importance of developing the lived and living experience workforce. Jack Nagel, thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with me and our listeners. I appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. Mate, what's your background and yeah. how did you get into founding Real Drug Talk? So, yeah, look, I got into the overall alcohol and drug space just due to my own personal experience, smashing my life to bits really with, with drugs. I used a lot of different drugs. In the end, it was mainly a methamphetamine or ice. Went to rehab. The big thing for me was kind of engaged in some services by myself when I was using drugs. And it was good, but I just never really like connected with anyone. And something big that happened for me when I went to this particular rehab, I wanted help. I, I, was, I was sort of pretty broken. But when I got there, the people, as well as being counsellors, had a lived experience as well and were able to share with me you know, their stories. And for me, the thing that I always tell people with the lived experience piece is that it wasn't so much the their story because it was quite different. It was more the way that they were able to like intimately describe to me how they were thinking and feeling that blew me away. Because, you know, when you're sitting around like the dope house, you're not kind of talking about your feelings and what's going through your heads and, you know, the inner turmoil. And that really blew me away and was like a, a turning point for me. And 
that didn't fix me, but it sort of opened the door to allow me to trust that maybe this could be different for me and things could work and, you know, engage in the clinical process. So yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then from there, I've always been someone, I never really knew what I wanted to do with myself. I, as a kid, I wanted to be like a sports superstar, smash that to bits with drugs. What sort of sport, mate, was the dream? AFL? I, I loved AFL and in hindsight, to be honest, I wish I had kept playing that because I, I did love that more. But yeah, I'm six foot six and I started playing basketball. I was lucky to have some good coaches and I progressed like as a junior pretty far through that. We went to America, you know, stuff cool. like that. And I kind of thought that was going to be something like that was going to be my life until it yeah took a big turn with drugs, obviously. So... So yeah. what, what age did you start using drugs? Oh, uh, it was about, it's all a bit of a blur, but I think it was about like 14. Yeah. And just, you know, like mucking around, smoking dope yeah. with my mates. I still played basketball for a long time until I was like nearly 18. But when I stopped playing basketball, that's when my life like really hit the skids because I guess I lost all structure and, you know, stuff like that. Did, did you, when you started using 2000, sorry, in, when you were 14 years of age, did you have uh, support networks around you? Were they aware of what was going on? Was it all completely under the table? I guess I kind of consider myself lucky. You know, wasn't from like a wealthy family or anything, but pretty like middle class. So I had like a good family network, was brought up well, taught right from wrong, had good friends. So I think that held me in good stead, but no one knew what was going on. That, that was the big shock to everyone really that it kind of happened to me. You know, I was like the real nice kid that played sport and you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, people were so, kind of surprised. Yeah. Were, were you addicted to um, smoking dope? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That was like my, that was like my first thing. And I guess for me, what I've kind of learned in hindsight I was addicted to it and I kind of knew that I was dependent on it, I guess, but uh, I didn't really care about it because it wasn't affecting my life too much. Like I could sort of still function. function and do stuff. My sporting ability kind of dropped off a little bit, but it, I was still okay, you know. So I didn't really care about it, but I don't think that like dope's like a gateway drug, but for me, it kind of was in a way as well because I guess you're just mixing with different people then there's different drugs that come out and you try them and, and that's kind of how it started for me. That's incredible. So then when you were 18, uh, you stopped playing sport. Yeah. And that's when – do you think the fact that – and kids in sport keeps them busy, keeps them hundred percent away from the sort of the crowds that perhaps are just hanging in the streets? Do you reckon that's part of it? hundred. It was for me as well, like 100%. And it also – I don't know, there's all that intangible stuff about like being in a team and – you know, building resilience and, you know, stuff like that. I think that goes a long way as well. You know, we, we've just had a, uh, a baby boy as well. He's 10 months old and it's one of the first things I've got on my list is to have him in sport, you know, because yeah. even as bad as my life went, I still was able to kind of fall back on some of those networks and communities and things that I learned from playing sports. So I think it's super important, yeah. Congrats on the bub, mate. Thanks, thanks. Uh, how good's fatherhood? <laughs> oh, it's the best. I didn't expect yeah it to be that good i knew i'd enjoy it but yeah it's it's amazing indescribable i know what people are talking about now when they say that yeah yeah that's great mate and i know that and i'm not saying for a, a second that you know there isn't any drugs in sport because we know that there still is yeah. issues with drugs in sport but just trying to get kids off the street you know have a purpose that's around some sort of community with their friends and that sort of may provide a better opportunity for them to 
not get as as deep or mm. have as, as many issues do you think i think it's a way out as well you know I, i'm not an expert in like the youth space or anything like that but just not even not even with youth just just with anyone really like if i think about what people want when they you know decide to kind of get into recovery and change their life it, it's like yes they do want to get off drugs but more so most people kind of don't want their life to be how it is anymore you know and they want connection they want to speak to people and you know sometimes the traditional like therapies aren't always the thing that are most effective you know like I've seen like boxing and team sports and stuff like that just be such a awesome place for people to go to and and they might not really know how to talk and whatever but they can just get involved in the game the sport whatever it is and and sort of start to kind of connect and talk with people that way so I think it's super important I, it was part of actually there's this organization through the Salvation Army called RecLink I think it's the Salvation Army uh, in Melbourne and that was part of my early recovery days it's sort of like community sport um, for people with tough backgrounds and stuff so yeah we'd go and play footy once a week there was this famous footballer his name's Gavin Krasiska who was in recovery as well he was kind of around at the same time that was really important for me because I thought you know he's a sports guy I thought he was cool he was like coaching the team and it was great it was like something that I look forward to every week and it was a big part of my journey yeah so I got into recovery went to rehab in 2011 so I was like 20 just about to turn 21. Okay uh, so when yeah. you were 18 you went into the harder drugs? I was already kind of using them but it wasn't like out, it was out of control but it wasn't sort of in the depths of like addiction that I got to after I stopped you know sport yeah so from the age of 18 19 early 20s i mean just mixing with the wrong people was it just i guess by that stage i was sort of <clears throat> i wasn't using ice at that stage but i was i was using like other amphetamines and prescription drugs and stuff like that and i was still like things were going wrong in my life but i was still largely like having a good time and i was already around those people but I guess that's the thing that started to happen. You know, like drugs and alcohol in some ways kind of have like a personality. They change the way you think. They, yeah, the, the outlook on life is different and that started to happen to me. So that's why I kind of quit sport. So I quit everything. And I guess I just went out and I had this thing in my head, I'm going to be a normal teenager, you know, chase girls. Because I was playing a lot of sport, like chase girls, party, have fun. And it just didn't end up like that. You know, I just kind of just was doing drugs all the time and then yeah just mixing with different people different ways of using drugs and the thing that kind of really broke my back is when I started using intravenously I guess yeah it was just for me I don't know if that's for everyone but it was just like a different level of addiction for me really it just sort of everything intensified the effects were much like kind of stronger my mental health was shocking after that yeah so that that's when things got super bad did they almost start controlling everything you did in your life? 100%. 100%. Yeah, like everything was revolved around drugs and alcohol. Um, at that time, my mum was really worried about me. And it's kind of funny because that's one of the ways that it got really bad. She was worried about me. She's from the country in, in Victoria and she got me a job with one of her uh, mates that was a carpet layer. Weird job for someone that's super tall, but anyway. So I started doing that and it was like kind of one of the best things that happened to me, but one of the worst things as well. So I was around like a, a group of blokes that were like kind of knock around dudes, but they were like good, good people. So they sort of taught me a lot about how to, yeah, just be a good young man, but still be able to kind of be myself and be a bit, you know, cheeky and whatever. Um, 
But the worst thing about it was I was getting paid cash in hand and I was getting about a thousand bucks in my pocket every week, which is like a lot for, for me at 18, 19 when I had no like responsibilities, didn't have to pay for anything and it just yeah. went all on drugs. So then I had this huge habit and of course I was unmanageable. So I got fired um, from that job. And then I had this huge habit with like no income and I just got desperate and yeah, my life just kind of just turned into, you know, I know everyone doesn't end up like that, but mine did just kind of like the stereotypical like movie that you see, you know, pretty close to something like Basketball's Diaries, if anyone's ever seen that movie, just, yeah, it was just a mess, just a mess, yeah. Rock bottom. Rock bottom, suicidal, psychosis. Still living at home? No, mum had kind of kicked me out. I was in and out of dad's and just kind of couch surfing around at my parents. You know, I go, mum, mum kicked me out because I had a younger brother. Still have a younger brother, but he was, when I was 18, he was 10. So, you know, he was, he was young and it just, yeah, it just wasn't good to have me in the house, which, yeah. you know, I understand. So I'd come back, you know, mum would have to call the police sometimes, you know, all that sort of yeah. stuff was going on. Yeah. And I just hated myself, just hated myself. Yeah how uh, how do you navigate towards methamphetamines in the spectrum of the drugs i mean mm. it's foreign for someone that has never done it H how <laughs> is it is it something that's easier cheaper than everything else is it gives you a high i don't yeah for me everyone's different i guess but for me i was using speed i tried like heroin and stuff and i did like it but not as much as like amphetamines you know like you sort of take heroin and you just go to sleep and i sort of wanted to like party so i was using a lot of speed and Back when I was using it at that time, like a gram of speed was like 200, 250 bucks. And it would sort of, by the time your tolerance build up, it, it would only sort of last you like a night, you know? So one day someone in the car outside the pub gave me like a point of, of methamphetamine. And at that time, I think the point was like a hundred bucks. It was about a thousand bucks for a gram of um, meth, which is a lot more expensive than it is now. I understand it's kind of a lot cheaper now, which is scary to think about. And it was just so potent, you know, it was, it was that point lasted me like two days or something or longer. I was only smoking it and the high was much more intense. The, the length of time that I was high for was much longer. And that's kind of what hooked me in. Um, and then obviously it turns on you though, you know, you build your tolerance and all that sort of stuff. And before you know it, you're like buying this expensive drug and it's not having the same effects as it did. But for me, it was like the potency and, and the effects because I was already using other drugs that kind of hooked me in, yeah. And so, Jack, like, tell us, uh, what, how do you get yourself out of it? And, and was it a support network that helped you do that or was it something you had to do on your own? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I, so as I said, that lived experience piece when I went to the rehab was huge. I went through rehab. <laughs> the rehab I went through was only 30 days. It was really good, but I guess, you know, to put it not so politically correct, I was mad you know i was kind of i was just coming back into myself it's pretty out there so i don't think that really did anything to help me so much but it created like a supportive environment and gave me some hope and then from there i actually went into a place called shark in victoria which is a government funded place uh, and stayed there for two years which was fantastic and they took us to like 12-step programs and there was other young people there that were you know in the in the same spot as me trying to turn their life around there was workers there we didn't do too much therapy but they kind of supported us just to get our life back together so you know I got encouraged to go and study I did my drug and alcohol certification you know all that sort of stuff got a job started to get money in my pocket you know and all these things like kind of connecting with people again playing sport 
that's what really helped me to to get my life on track and pretty much everybody that I speak to now and that's why that's what I'm going to talk about at the conference is you know the lived experience workforce and trying to professionalize that and things because everybody that I talk to they all say if, if even if they go through the church or however they come to recovery they all have those elements where they have good social connection they start to get their life back on track they kind of get a bit of a purpose back they get some sort of you know inner work happening as well and when you kind of put all that stuff together that's when you know the magic happens and, and things start to change so <laughs> Something about you on that day said, you know what, I've had enough of this life. You obviously came around enough to think this isn't any good for me. Yeah. Was that something that was in just internally was with your own doing uh, or was it something that someone helped you do? Yeah, so that's the other thing I say to people all the time as well. I actually didn't want to be doing what I was doing for a long time. You know what I mean? Like I, I just didn't sort of know the way out. <laughs> um and that's why it's exciting, I think, these days is there's more things on the internet and stuff like that. But, yeah, I, I just – I hated myself and I was very confused and I didn't know why I kept doing what I was doing even though I didn't want to. You know, such a strange thing. So even if people's behaviour seems crazy and out of control and, you, and you know, if I think about family members or professionals trying to work out how to help this person, you never know. They might not actually, you know, want to be doing what they're doing and, and most people I talk to don't. So – that was kind of the space that I sat in for a long time, which deeply kind of affected me. And that's why I think, you know, I had, yeah, some suicidal stuff going on and all that because I just couldn't work out how to get out of it. So when the right people at the right time came along, it, it was more just about like kind of unlocking the hope really and, and helping me to show, show, you know, lighting the path up for me to, to show me the way out. Let's go to the power of, of lived experience. So obviously... Um, and I just want to obviously acknowledge anyone with lived experience and, and the value that it brings yeah. to the mental health sector. It's incredible. And you see that they can relate, they can resonate, they just build that rapport. They have that understanding and that knowing that yeah. you, you just, it's just incredible. Yeah. Tell me about how that role has helped you set you on your pathway and the and the impact that's had on your life yeah well it's funny so i so i did my as i said that my certification um i went and worked in like rehabs and in the drug and alcohol sector and what actually happened to me was i it was right when you know inverted commas the ice epidemic was going on and it was all over the papers and i was just got approached through working at the rehab to to tell my story in in the media and they put they plastered my story all over the sort of they did this double what do you call it double page spread in the herald sun like two pages in and it just went crazy so i did like every media outlet in australia in like two days i was literally just doing interviews back to back on tv and all that sort of stuff and there's a lot of stuff in that that wasn't so good and if i had my time again it would be cool to to do it differently but there was a lot of good that came out of it as well and and i had i had like over you know two thousand people just personal message me on facebook they just found my name and and messaged me and i kind of went wow you know that really like impacted people and you know maybe sharing my story can can just provide a little bit of hope on a wider scale so that's kind of where real drug talk was was born and and from that i've just been yeah, as well as doing professional stuff, just, you know, talking to governments, talking to researchers, talking at conferences like this, doing media stuff, um, all with the hope that just, 
maybe there's someone out there listening, you know, that can that can relate and and decide to change their life as well. And I think that's why, if we can just similar to what they've done in the mental health sector, if we can do that in the alcohol and drug sector, you know, professionalize and formalize the lived experience workforce because everybody relates to someone different, everybody has a different background, then that that kind of my story, you know, can be yeah. 50 people's story and you never know how many people we're going to be able to help with that. So, so you're in the in that supported rehab area for two years. Two years. And in that time you were doing some voluntary stuff or you're getting paid work to support other people? No, in that time I, I was pretty much just working on myself and doing okay. my schooling. And okay. then after I came out of my schooling, a private rental with a couple of my mates and then I was very lucky I got a placement through my school and then started working in, in the rehabs and, and stuff like that. How did, Jack, how did your circle of friends change? Oh, massively. I think that's one of the hardest things that I've found because a lot of my friends were like friends that I grew up with and they kind of did drugs as well. And it's, it's kind of sad. There's a lot of people that I don't see anymore or, or haven't seen for a long time, not, not because they're bad people, but I just wasn't kind of strong enough within myself to... to around that in those times it's kind of the the airplane oxygen mask theory you know you got to kind of help yourself before you can help anyone else and and so from there I, I guess I just was really hanging out with other people that yeah like had their own challenges and stuff but were on the same journey as me and then I think I sort of I did that for five years and then yeah my life just started to just kind of take off and and it just become inverted commas like a normal person again you know which was quite strange as well yeah met my wife got married just mixing with all yeah. different kinds of people and yeah now when I sit here today I look back on it and it's kind of it's a bit surreal like it's it's it's, and that's why it's so important that other people come up because it's hard to connect with, you know, it's been 11 years or, or more and it's, it's hard to think that I was that person, you know, yeah, so. So are you living a life of sobriety today? Yeah, so for 10 years, you know, no substances, still don't really drink or anything like that. But my ideas and stuff like that have changed about, you know, what's possible for people. I, I kind of think about it more on a spectrum now that, you know, you, you don't, have to be penciled in as like an addict or an alcoholic forever it's more about if you work through you know your internal demons and whatever's going on underneath the surface you can kind of come back into a normal space and if you want to but yeah that that takes a lot of work and energy and honesty and good connections and supports with people and stuff like that so yeah but but definitely like abstinence and you know sobriety and you know engaging in recovery communities very heavily at the start is so important for people yeah well, well, mate, congratulations for thanks for doing that. So you're 10 years? Yeah, 10 years. But I think so. I kind of lost count now. Yeah, yeah ten, t- about 10 years, yeah. Wow, yeah. awesome. And, and tell me, other than, you know, meeting your wife and having kids, which I assume yeah. are massive highs in your life right now, which is understandably so, tell us about how else has your life changed for the better? Yeah. Oh, it's really it's really cool. It's This might sound like a funny one for people, but... I never had a very like strong self-esteem and I struggled to kind of think about myself, you know, uh, like for myself, I mean. So it's just a bit of like a personal highlight that I have that, you know, I can kind of like form my own opinions about things, take my own path, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's been really cool to, to develop that, which sounds like a bit of a weird one, but it's super important to me. And yeah, like it's been awesome. I've had a few different businesses over the 10 years and done well with, with that kind of stuff. Just, you know, connecting with like my family again and having good relationships, just like enjoying, you know, enjoying life. But for me, 
you know, I think because I have hit those real low lows, still to this day, the most important thing to me is like the peace and serenity that I have between my ears. You know what I mean? You can't, yeah. you just can't buy that. And I try, I'm not perfect at it, I'm a human, but I try and kind of, you know, protect that as much as I can and, and just try and live true to myself so that it hangs around. Is it scary about what you think is possible with this drug and, and are you worried about society with that as being an issue? I'm worried about the way that we think about it and the way that like the media talks about it and the way it's portrayed because you're right, like it, it is prevalent in society and it is addictive, right? But I think it also kind of gets portrayed in the wrong light too, which actually prevents people from engaging in help and services and stuff. So I can remember for me, there is a percentage of people that get aggressive and stuff like that, right? But one of the things with ice is is that if you use ice, you know, there's that ad, I don't know if you remember it, that you're going to pick up a chair and throw it through the emergency window and you're going to rage off your head, right? Largely, that is not true. <laughs> and it doesn't happen to a lot of people. It can happen, you know, but the majority of people it doesn't. And I remember when I took drugs, I was really scared, right, that, that something like that was going to happen to me when I took meth and it didn't. And I remember that kind of fed into this belief that I had about services and, you know, the authority and stuff like that, that they're full of shit. I don't know if I could say that, sorry, but, you know, and it kind of created this disconnect. So yeah, right. when I talk to a lot of people, because we, we run a little program for professionals, like as an outpatient thing as well, and... There's a lot of people in a lot of different um, sectors that, that, you know, in terms of the professionals that use methamphetamine. So, you know, nurses, we've had doctors, we've had lawyers, you know, people in like government, you know, stuff like yeah. that. It's crazy. So, and, and it, it is prevalent, but I think to reach all those different groups of people to kind of be able to step in before it kind of gets to where it got with me, I think the conversation that we have to have around it has to change we have to acknowledge that yes it's addictive and you can get in trouble with it but you don't have to like freak out either and you're not going to turn into like the hulk or you know you're not going to like be picking sores off your face and stuff like that as well yeah. yeah yeah so what do you think is some of the i mean how do you think we go about trying to help people yeah uh, break their addiction it's it's a good question so i think on a personal level it's it's really about the understanding that I've come to is that it's really about like negative belief systems that form for people about themselves, whether it's, that's not necessarily trauma, but whether it's from like childhood or experiences that they have in, you know, their addictions or, or whatever it is, there's a series of negative belief systems, uh, negative emotional patterns and behavioral patterns that kind of compound over a period of time. And, and you really have to look at what's behind the use and and shift and help people to change that and when they can then they don't need to kind of have a crutch or escape their life with you know substances because they feel okay and worthwhile within themselves so i think that's kind of the the, the real secret to it when people move into that you know one percent category like me of of dependence but i think like on a societal level it just really comes down to stigma and discrimination you know that's the that's the biggest thing that prevents people as i said before you know maybe accessing and engaging in a service and some sort of support when they're using like a point once a week rather than waiting until they're using every day and their life is like falling apart to to get help when it's much harder to to change things up it it is interesting and i, I i'd love to see what where how did you get the bridge between 
doing that and obviously starting the real drug talk like how how has yeah. that come about it was from it was from working in the in the rehab and we had a lot of people coming through the rehab and we were helping a lot of people but there was a lot of people falling through the cracks as well and then i did that media stuff and i thought oh there's got to be a way just to like kind of change the conversation change the paradigm around you know dealing with addiction and that's really been the mission since then and it's kind of taken a lot of different forms and 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 yeah it's been it's been a pretty cool journey to i don't know just kind of see how the system works see the good stuff see the faults but you know i, I think for me, I try not to be an Eeyore, right? Like I like to have some positivity. I, I can really see that things have changed in the last three to five years. I think like there's been a lot of interesting people coming into the space, a lot of different things happening. And I think I think there's going to be some pretty significant changes that happen maybe over the next 10 years that's going to help a lot of people at the level of policy and the way that we understand from research and modern technology and medicines and stuff like that that come out. Mate, tell us a bit around some of those things. Like, what what are some of these exciting things coming up that you think will help? Um, yeah, help people break the cycle. So for people, so so there's a couple, a couple of different sections at the level of policy. And there was someone talking about it yesterday at the conference. You know, the the conversation around decriminalisation and legalisation, and you know, so just some different like policy approaches to to drugs and alcohol coming more you know into the into the minds of the decision makers which is just gonna if if something like that happens here in australia it'll just have such a massive flow-on positive effect i i think you know the rise of technology is really exciting it's kind of scary but it's really exciting as well you know like there's some really interesting stuff that they're doing in the states there's some people trying to do things here in australia as well with like machine learning on human behavior and almost being able to provide interventions based on you know i don't know what you call it like biochemical um, responses in the body and you know understanding the habits and the processes of people and using yeah that machine learning and that technology to provide interventions digitally or whatever it might be to you know help people with their cravings or patterns before they actually happen which is really interesting you know wearables and stuff like that so yeah there's a lot of different stuff happening but most encouragingly for me you know i know it's not all about celebrities and stuff like that but i think it's an indication of how the world's going and thinking about it there's more people with kind of high profiles coming out and talking about their struggles with you know drug and alcohol use and substances that i think goes a long way just to change how the community at large thinks about it and you know approach you know helps everyone to kind of approach it in a different way a lot like what happened i know there's still a lot of work to be done a lot like what with what happened around depression and anxiety recently you know and how the public just kind of shifted their perspective on it so tell us with regards to real drug talk what's happening with that so so what we're trying to do with real drug talk is yeah really just be uh, an organization that's part of like changing the conversation but we actually one of the things that's happened to me is that I've been really lucky to share my story and then meet, you know, like the tippy top researchers that, you know, that really think about this stuff, dedicated their life to do it, you know, politicians, policymakers, as well as people with experience as well. And it's really changed the way that I've thought about myself and, you know, the problem of drugs and alcohol itself for the better. And I kind of wanted to create like a platform and a space that does that as well. So yeah, we kind of got a mission just to have the conversation about it and see if we can get some 
some ideas happening. And then what, you know, what we do, we're doing some work. We're trying to get some things going in the background with, you know, formalizing the peer workforce. And then, yeah, we do a lot of consulting to, to governments and stuff like that with, with, with real drug talk. So that's the, that's the mission is trying to be a, a part of just holding the space to have conversations like this with all different types of people that are interested in the drug and alcohol space and see if um, we can connect people up and, and get some shifts happening. Mate, it's exciting the prospect of getting more peer workers in this space and I'm sure it's going to help create better outcomes for Very people so. that are struggling with addictions. I mean, we, we're going to see, I guess the, the challenge will be trying to get the workers, trying to attract people to want to... They're there. <laughs> that's there. the thing. Like, so that's my biggest frustration. And it's actually, it's actually, it's shifting a bit now. But when I started working, I really wanted to like use my story. And it's part of the reason why I went straight into like a private organization, right? Because a lot of the, the government funded services for good reason about protecting people and, you know, their mental health and doing things right. I, I get it. But you weren't allowed to really like share your story and, 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 you know, open up about your experiences, which I knew for me and so many other people that I talked to is the thing that really helps people to have the shift. So it was kind of frustrating for me. So, but, but what I found, and I think someone was presenting, it might've been Rob yesterday that, you know, they surveyed the workforce in New South Wales and 50% of the workforce had a lived experience, you know, directly already with, with alcohol and drugs. And, there's so many people that I know that come through trying to change their life that maybe they don't want to do it forever, but particularly in those first couple of years, it's just a win-win for everyone. It, it, it provides, you know, a really good element to help people in those early days. It helps the person themselves because they're getting some work and, you know, helping them to kind of become productive and part of society again. And then it also creates the opportunity for, you know, there's this big conversation in the AED sector at the moment is like, we've got an aging workforce and we're struggling to get workers, you know, across the board in the different specializations and all that sort of stuff. So this is like a hungry market of people that want to help and they can't do it all as peer workers, but, you know, they might do peer work for one or two years and kind of go yeah I really like this I want to become a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a specialized social worker or whatever it is and then they go on to do further study so I just can't I just I just can't see any negatives really out of out of formalizing it but it has to be formalized there has to be like some boundaries there has to be a beginning and an end point training training and all that stuff like you have to do it properly you can't just throw people in there and expect them to like help and support and you know you got to protect people as well yeah jack tell us about how can people get in touch with you what what sort of tools do you have yeah and yeah how can they hear more about you so we're pretty heavily across like all social media if you just punch in real drug talk into whatever platform our main ones at the moment are instagram and believe it or not tiktok don't worry everybody we don't dance on tiktok, TikTok but mate, we've congratulations. got yeah we've got forty thousand people so it's pretty cool to to, <laughs> to just be on that platform it's kind of weird but yeah i've just been blown away by how many messages and stuff we get through when we post little videos of the podcast and stuff so yeah that's really cool so just anywhere on like social media linkedin as well you know where where wherever and what about your own podcast uh, that's called Real Drug Talk as well. So if you okay. just if you just type in Real Drug Talk into any of the podcast services, it should come up there, and you know that the hundred odd episodes that we've done will be there. So Jack, just round out a bit of a summary. What are the most um, 
pressing thing moving forward in the future what are some of the high priorities that you're really focusing yeah. on so reducing stigma and discrimination but i think like structurally policymakers and politicians is the most important because everything has a flow on from there yeah the the lived experience workforce for me is is just such a massive one and Probably the third one is, yeah, I've got a little interest in technologies and, you know, how that can, can come up and assist, you know, the sector to, to have better outcomes with clients and patients and whatnot. Mate, it sounds like you're going to have your, your hands full. Plenty going on there and it is exciting, that technology space. The workforce, the lived experience workforce, mate, getting that structure right and trying to make sure that that's done properly is, I understand why that's a high priority and the outcomes I'm sure will be beneficial throughout people in that are getting seeking the services and stigma and discrimination is a big one and has been around for some time but trying to get in there and shake the leaves a little bit yeah. from the political side of things sounds like it might be a quicker way to get some change yeah i think so well and the the funny thing about you know that i think everybody has to remember about alcohol and drugs is that we would love it just to be talked about as a medical issue but it really is like a political you know sledgehammer that they just pull out every now and then and use so the more that we can kind of uh, convince politicians and and policymakers to change their approaches and their their communication i think we're going to get better results spot on mate and i think and i just want to say thank you for your time but also for the you know for having the courage to share your journey with our listeners but also reiterate the power of lived experience in in the mental health sector but especially as well the aod sector and hopefully we see some inroads there with building that workforce and that that peer support mate thanks very much for your time and we appreciate it uh, thanks for having me pleasure is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast are there more questions you want the answers to let us know what you want to hear get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.